Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and my wonderful wife is actually the producer today. She is running the show, so thank you so much, Janet, for doing that. And we are excited to be at the Mises Institute, live in the Mises Institute. Um, I've been following the Mises Institute for quite a few years now. They are a free market t- think tank, for lack of a better term. I'll let Jeff... Uh, um, talk more about that, but we are interviewing Jeff Deist, who is the director of the Mises Institute, and we've interviewed him on our show before, and uh, the Mises is all about free market. So, Jeff, welcome to our show. Thanks very much. Good to see you again. Yes. So, tell us a little bit about the Mises Institute. Well, we try to be an alternative school. We think economics is obviously a big part of, of everything that happens in life. Uh, we wouldn't want to send our kids out in the world not knowing how to read and write or not able to make change in the cash register or or handle their checking account or do all kinds of things. And economics is really a, the, the study of uh, human action and human cooperation. I think markets are just another word for human cooperation when you more or less leave them alone within the framework of, of a rule of law. And so we really exist to try to fight against a couple of things. First of all, is why it's better mass just economic ignorance, yeah. just a lack of economic knowledge or understanding. I certainly didn't get any economics in high school. I didn't get into undergraduate, for example. Uh, but beyond that, uh, ignorance also within economics itself, we think that the profession has gone down a very bad path. Uh, it's become a mathematical and statistical modeling exercise. As a matter of fact, to get a PhD in economics today, you need to take very very difficult high-level math, uh, vector calculus and such. Really? And so th- this is what students are studying as opposed to studying logic and understanding uh, human action and really viewing economics almost as a branch of philosophy, yeah. which is, is how we would view it. And so the Austrian school, which we promote and support, has a different view than what we might call today's mainstream. And so uh, in our opinion, Economists today aren't doing a lot to help people understand the world, to help us under, make us happier or healthier or wealthier, which we think social sciences ought to do. But worse than that, they're actually doing some harm. They're doing some active harm by promoting or teaching in university settings uh, misinformation, by trying to have these statistical and mathematical models and say, tell us, oh, there's no, there's no problem with the housing market. That's Ben Bernanke in 2005, 2006. Right. And of course, he was disastrously wrong. And so we really want to uh, be there as an alternative school for lay people to understand economics in, in a way that they can and that makes sense to them to improve their lives and their understanding, but also to serve as an alternative to what we think is the economics mainstream, which is which has gone down a bad path, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a great explanation. Thank you. And how does this apply to healthcare? I can tell you that one of the things that I was thinking about when you um, were given your introduction is um, you said logic. They don't teach logic anymore. Well, that sounds like healthcare. It sounds like like pharmacy and medicine. Um, we teach a lot of black and white stuff, and we're not letting pharmacists, doctors, and nurses make rational, logical decisions anymore. We're just being told what to do based on certain models. And I think the most important thing that sets us apart as humans in in pretty much any any uh, whether it be um, economics or whether it be healthcare is that you know we have logic and 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 rationale for a reason, 
And I think that, um, you know, our healthcare be better off like that. So with that in mind and, and the Mises principles of economics, um, how does that apply to healthcare? Does, does that apply to free, mar- free market principles in healthcare? Well, it, it applies in spades. I'll, I'll just <laughs> start with that. What we have to understand is when you introduce a third party, whether that's the government itself or whether that's essentially a government sanctioned or even mandated insurance company, right. a third party payer, then you've damaged the natural relationship between a physician and his or her patient, between a pharmacist and his or her patient, and you've introduced a middleman who is making decisions on a process rather than results-oriented um, platform, right? Well, you know, a, a patient evidences these symptoms, okay, you know, your HMO employer tells the doctor, you check these boxes, prescribe this drug. Right. Okay, you're taking the art and you're taking the um, experience and you're taking the instincts away from the practitioner who is, who is a part technician but also part artist, right? There's an art to that. Um, and so the introduction of a third party is disastrous to that relationship, not only in terms of the care that the patient receives, but also in terms of the rationing up of the cost. Um, I met you and Janet through Keith Smith, a, a dear friend of mine who runs the Free Market Medical Association. I've been to some of their conferences. And we all know that if medicine were run on a cash basis, where you paid cash for basic services, you paid cash for basic prescriptions, and insurance existed purely to account for, you know, with using actuarial risk and pricing according, sorry folks, to your variables, maybe your age, maybe your weight, maybe your smoking habits, you're a daredevil skydiver or something, you're gonna pay a little more. Um, having insurance for truly catastrophic, life-changing, you know, a cancer diagnosis, a serious illness, a serious hospitalization, a serious car accident, something like that. That is the point of insurance. Something where you can assess premiums based on risk uh, using actuarial reality. That's what insurance is for. Insurance is not for your day-to-day sniffles and visits to the doctor or the urgent care. As a matter of fact, because of insurance, we've created two classes of people, those with and without, and those without are often clogging up ERs for things that could be handled by a primary care physician, that could be handled by an urgent care center. So the, the gross distortions introduced, not only in the quality of care, but also in how we pay for things by having third parties uh, has turned what was the greatest, most envied healthcare system in the world, in the free world, really up until let's say the 1950s or 1960s in America, and turn it into an absolute laughing stock where People with so-called single payer, like in Canada and the UK, uh, you know, uh, will laugh at us. Yeah, exactly. So you're telling me that when the government, the government doesn't have to be involved in healthcare, and when they do, um, things get more expensive and the quality goes down. Is that what you're saying? Give me, Absolutely. give some examples. Well, let me just give you go back to the example of the first half of the 20th century in this country. What was the model then? The model was cash for basic services. Okay. And all doctors, I, I worked for Dr. Ron Paul. He did this in the sixties. All doctors understood that a certain percentage of your patients couldn't pay. You would see them for free. You might see them in exchange for some services like back in the day, they'd give you some chickens or something, or you would simply write off their bill. And doctors were not considered particularly noble for this. It wasn't considered any great sacrifice. It was just part of life as a doctor. Cash and just, just on that same point, sorry to interrupt, but on the same point, 
They didn't brag about how much charity care they gave away. They didn't brag. They just did it. No, in 1968, when Dr. Paul opened his OB practice in South Texas, weren't a lot of OBs around. It was a rural area. Women had to travel a long ways. Some of them just couldn't pay. And that's the way it was. And he treated them all the way through delivery. And that's how it was. Okay. Um, So to get back to that sort of thing, uh, and there's pressure towards that direction. I mean, we have these these mini clinics. We have Walmart getting into optometry and dentistry and basics. Uh, you know, and then you have on the other end, very wealthy people can have concierge doctors. If you're Barbara Streisand, uh, you don't call your dermatologist and say, oh, we can see you in three months, right? Barbara Streisand is rich. She has a concierge doctor. He come here. She comes over and sees Barbara Streisand that day. Okay. So you'd have really rich people paying cash for basic services in a luxurious way. And you'd have really, uh, low, uh, you know, poor people or less affluent people paying cash for basic services at places like Walmart. And then you would have a charitable network, including charitable hospitals, which were unbelievably robust in this country in the first half of the 20th century. Catholic hospitals, for example, you would have very robust charitable uh, medicine. But the, the because the prices have all gotten so screwed up and so ratcheted up by this insurance nightmare, um, we, we've just lost sight of, of a cash medi- medical system. Well, when you look at the history, the, the Catholic hospitals, for instance, they, they were charity and they truly were. And then the problem with them now is most of those hospitals, um, you know, 80% of their funding sources, their payment sources comes from government sources now. So they're not charity anymore. They're basically taking tax dollars um, and using them you know, for big profits and they, and a lot of them are nonprofit and really, we, we really should, you know, rephrase that they're not nonprofit, they're tax exempt. And, and really they're not the charity that they give away now, instead of being like it was with Dr. Um, Paul in the 1960s is more, well, we're going to charge you tenfold for what, for, for the services of what they really cost. And then, you know, we're only going to collect 10% of that. And then we're going to write the rest off and call that charity. And that's what's happened to a lot of those hospitals. And it's very unfortunate. We really have to uh, look into that. Now, it would have never happened in a free market system if the, if somebody else, like a third party, especially the government, wasn't paying the bill um, because they would have had to look directly into the eyes of consumers and charge them a reasonable price and, and, and get a quality service for that. Well, one of the great catastrophes, of course, of Obamacare is the elimination of truly uh, bare bones, high deductible, catastrophic yeah. policies. Uh, in my own life, when I got out of college, and I was in my 20s. I thought I was bulletproof, of course, living life. My dad was not so convinced that I was bulletproof. And he was able to buy, again, I'm in my 20s, my health profile, you know, the risk is low. Yeah, right. He was able to buy a high deductible, something like $10,000 deductible, which in my 20s, I could never. Uh, right, 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 that, right, right. But he would have, uh, I suppose, uh, a high deductible catastrophic type policy that would have only kicked in if something really bad happened to be like, again, a car accident or something. Like that. And the premium on that was something like $175 a year. A year, a year, because of just the the risk, right. and so we've just we've lost the ability uh, to have those kinds of policies. The the marketplace, not only in the cost side and the actual provision of nuts and bolts services like cleaning your teeth, uh, but on the insurance side, also with it, with reinsurance and packaging things, you would see unbelievably novel approaches to making healthcare more affordable if the market were allowed to work. But like so many other things, medicine. 
and the uh, industries around it, particularly insurance, health insurance, so-called, have become so heavily regulated that we really can't call them part of the free market. And so some of these big health providers, they're almost quasi-governmental entities. So it's not like the NHS in the UK. You're not going directly to an NHS doctor and, you know, with your waiting list or whatever. But you're going to a doctor uh, who is essentially paid according to a schedule yeah. uh, set by government, especially when it comes to older citizens in the Medicare arena. And the whole thing is just absolutely stifling. And what makes me angry and sad is that we end up sort of with the, be- the worst of both worlds. In other words, I mean, I would consider Canadian and English medicine true single payer. The government is the provider. The, the doctors work for the government as a direct employee. I would consider that the worst of all worlds. But um, from the taxpayer's perspective, yeah, it's free. It might be crappy. You might have to wait. But here it, it, we get sort of the worst of the of the price increases because of government intervention. Um, but we also, you know, don't get the, the beauty of a cash system. Um, so, you know, there we have to look at the bright spots. There are heroic doctors out there working against us. There are pharmacists like yourself who are bucking the tide. There are DPC, direct primary care physicians, uh, bucking the tide. And um, many of them now, and there's one in, in my town of Auburn, Alabama, a college town of, of about 75,000. There are a couple here now who charge a, a pretty low annual fee and for same-day visits, et cetera. Um, so, you know, cracks in the system are showing, and, and entrepreneurs are filling them, anything from medical tourism to cash clinics like Dr. Smith Surgery Center in Oklahoma City. And there's an example where, you know, you go get surgery at your local hospital. You've got so many bills. You've got the hospital bill. You've got the anesthesiologist bill. You've got the surgeon's bill. You've got the drugs bill. You've got the aftercare bill. And all of those, you know, the, the co-pays, and the deductibles are rising. And the cash prices offered by clinics like Dr. Keith Smith is falling. So that delta between the two uh, is reduced to the point where, you know, if I had to go get a knee replacement or something, I think I would just go to Dr. Smith's clinic and pay cash. There's no doubt in my mind, my wife and I talk about it um, often, is that if it's an elective type surgery, that's where we're going. I mean, a good example is, my youngest son, about three years ago, he compound fracture of his tibia. Typical 18-year-old boy doing some 18-year-old boy stuff. And he came up short on a jump when he was jumping on an irrigation canal, <laughs> broke his tibia. And, of course, I, I'm out of town, and Janet's talking to me, and it's like, I'm like, I'm thinking, I don't want to go to my local hospital. <laughs> I'm thinking, Janet, how do we get him to Oklahoma? She's like, Sean, his bone is sticking out of his leg. We can't do that. Sure. So... We had to go through the whole process, and um, I was in contact with with Keith Smith while I was bargaining with the hospital, negotiating down a bill, which they weren't very good about. And like you said, there were five or six different bills, radiology, uh, hospital bill, doctor's Mm -hmm. bill, pathology, or uh, uh, labs, all separate. Anyway, they all added up to $48,000. Wow. Right. He was there. It was an outpatient deal. He, you know, he didn't stay overnight or anything. Healthy kid. Um, I asked Dr. Smith, how much would it be at Surgery Center of Oklahoma? And true to form, it's usually about eight to 10 to one. And at Surgery Center of Oklahoma, it would have been $8,000. Now, 
when you talk about co-pays, you know, people say, well, yeah, but if you had insurance, it would be better to, 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 do, to do this. And I guess, I, I guess in our situation, we didn't have a lot of choice to go anywhere else because mm-hmm. of, of um, you know, because of the situation. We had to get it, get it done right away. It wasn't elective. But I use it as an example because the pricing structure is still there. And let's say we did have insurance. So we don't have typical insurance. I don't believe in traditional insurance. I believe, like you said, with regulation, traditional insurance is government insurance. It's so highly regulated after Obamacare that if you're on traditional Blue Cross, United, it's government insurance. Um, and so we have a health sharing ministry. We, you know, talk about your your dad having a $175 a year policy for you. We pay $170 a, a month for ourselves. And it's it's incredible. Um, anyway, if you think of the co-pays that a person would have had to pay, a lot of pay, people will pay a 20% copay. 20% on $48,000 is $8,000, $9,000. So you'd be cheaper, better off to go to Surgeon Center of Oklahoma. Now, here's another thing. But so have, if you get in a car wreck and break your leg, do it in Oklahoma City. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, now, here's another thing. And, and hospitals want to argue this. And I've had great discussions with Dr. Smith about this. Is they want to argue, well, if it's cheap, then the quality is not as good. So we know that's not true. Tell us why that's not true. Well, because your provider's incentives are the same as yours, right? That, that's what's key in any market transactions. You want a win-win yeah. situation. And if you're, you know, if you go into your doctor and he or she is overworked and grumpy and angry about the Medicare reimbursement they're getting for your cataract, let's say, you know, and you're just a you're just another number in the system. And if you weren't there, some other elderly person with a cataract would be there in your stead. And, you know, they're limited to how much they can get reimbursed. Well, then you don't have the same sort of win win relationship. But if I go uh, to Dr. Keith Smith's clinics, I, I, I mean, they they want the surgery to go well. They want my check not to bounce. Right. Uh, they want uh, the you know the doctors to get paid a reasonable amount, oftentimes more than they might get paid by their local hospital system or Medicare reimbursement, which is which is very interesting. Uh, and they want everybody to to go away feeling good about it. Um, and and perhaps the patient is out there singing the praises of their surgery center to other people he or she knows. I've certainly sung Dr. Smith and his partner's praises to a lot of people who have actually gone there as a result of knowing about it through their relationship with me. So it's a very simple market transaction. You don't hate your customer's guts, right? and you share in their outcome. Um, so this, this, this seems simple, but th- there's this bizarre idea that, un- you know, what, what are we talking about here? What, what's the politics? What's the reality on the ground? There has been this bizarre thinking inculate, inculcated in several generations of Americans now that healthcare is different Right. That's it's somehow different from other goods or services on the marketplace. It's unique in its provision. It doesn't the market doesn't work. And number two is that you're entitled to it as a matter of being born onto God's earth. Um, well, by definition, you can't be entitled to the efforts or labor of another human. Right. That's not how morality works for one. So think of all the people and, and sweat and toil that went into having a, a, a surgeon bring you a particular set of skills and the drug, the development of the drugs that were used to anesthetize you or to heal your infection afterwards, whatever. I mean, these are marvels. And the idea that you have a right to those things, which represent the, the sweat and toil of, of, of countless people in a market, 
it is just I, I don't know how to reconcile that. I disagree. It, you know, and I've gone round and round with a lot of people who, who think that you do have a right to health care. So because we have this moronic idea that the market doesn't work somehow when it comes to to medicine and that you have a right to medicine for free, uh, those are pretty hard, big hurdles to overcome in terms of persuasion, political activism, uh, whatever, lobbying, whatever it might be. So I think the, the, the better approach, the more guerrilla approach, where you use your time and energy and, and, and resources wisely is to go out and just do things like DPC doctors are doing, like uh, cash clinics are doing, like medical tourism is doing, uh, like renegade pharmacies are doing. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's how we have to go after this thing, using the market and using entrepreneurship to fill in the cracks uh, which the government system still leaves. Yeah, and I, I, I think I'm optimistic. Um, there's been a, a, you know, a resurgence or or a restart, maybe because let's face it, you know, like you're talking about with you know Dr. Ron Paul, you know, 50 years ago, this is how medicine worked, and it was basically 1964 when Medicare came out. That's what really, really messed things up, and then you know the government got involved highly into um, um, you know, medicine with, with Medicare and Medicaid. And of course, if you look at what happened right after that, the cost just went and utilization went up because, you know, there were certain procedures that were paid at a high rate. And so all of a sudden people needed more of those procedures. I mean, a good example is nursing homes were basically non-existent in the United States, not non-existence, but their growth over a 10-year period after Medicare was 700%. Not a surprise. Medicare and Medicaid pays for nursing homes. So all of a sudden, everyone needs a nursing home. And instead of the family taking care of their elderly parents or their sick family anymore, you know, we wash our hands of it and let the government do it, kind of like what we've done with government schools. You know? And the care is never going to be as good. It's just not. I mean, there are three things that we can get in a, in. When, when we buy something, and that's basically price, quality, and service. And usually, you know, in a, in a free market, we'll tell people, well, you can get two of the three. But in healthcare, if you pay cash for services, you get all three mm-hmm. because the government system is that bad. Well, when it comes to entrepreneurship, we all have responsibility as individuals to be as healthy as we can, to try not to consume all these uh, healthcare resources, uh, especially the, given that number of the percentage of the population over 65 is set to double between now and 2050 in this country. So a lot of you know it's going to be an aging, graying population. I consider myself in that in that group, uh, and so you know we 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 have to not only avail ourselves of the market, but we also take have to take responsibility. I think for our own health. And try not to need too much healthcare because, as you said, the, the market exploded when when you made it free. All of a sudden, people find all kinds of reasons to go to the doctor, uh, and uh, I, I think we're probably overdoctored in this country. In other words, there's there's probably uh, too many doctors treating trifling things, and maybe too few uh, doing the really important work. I, I agree with you 100. percent And you know, it's basically it's basically economics and coming down to economics when, you know, a diabetic patient, for instance, you know, Medicare will pay for them to get a, 
a med check every month. I'm just using an example. I don't know if that's exactly true, but well, if that's the case, whether they need to be seen or not, you know, those clinics that take government money, they're good at saying, well, you need to come in next mm-hmm. month and next month and next month. And, mm-hmm. but when you look at the overall health of our, of our society, um, it's not working. We're not keeping people healthy. That's for sure. I mean, obesity is a real pandemic in this country. And, you know, I mean, look at type two diabetes, for instance, type two diabetes is, is definitely epidemic. And I always wonder, and I want your thoughts on this. If, if all the fancy drugs that we have and all the fancy medicine that we have to treat diabetes, um, if those weren't there, um, and people had to change their lifestyle because type two diabetes is a lifestyle disease. Period. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Jan and I are two pharmacists that do not believe in drugs to treat type two diabetes. Um, you can you can definitely reverse that with your diet and your lifestyle. So I wonder if people could do that if all that fancy medicine wasn't there, if we would have less of a problem. But because it's free, you know, imagine if people had to pay thousand dollars a month for the medication, um, would they change their diet? They had to pay for it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's all about incentives, right? I mean, incentives are real. And it seems to us that most of modern economics is acting like incentives don't matter. Well, you need to raise minimum wage. Okay, well, let's look at that. You know, um, let's make prescription drugs free. Medicare Part D passed uh, in a very unholy late night vote. Yep. The House of Representatives were a bunch of members who were who were on the bubble voting no had their arms twisted by this. The House Majority Leader at the time, a guy named Tom DeLay from Texas, went around and threatened several members, one of whom was about to retire and was hoping his son would take the congressional seat. Uh, this member was told, your son will never be a congressman if you vote no on this bill. Now, that's just one example. This is about 3 a.m., by the way. So this Medicare Part D uh, free drugs bill, in, in an actuarial sense, costs far more than just the original Medicare. In other words, drugs cost more than doctor visits. Yeah. So if we take go back to all the way to LBJ and say, what is, what is Medicare going to cost actuarial over many decades? It turns out the Part D uh, drug benefit actually costs more, and that was passed by the George W. Bush administration, mm-hmm. okay, with a definitely a, a Republican House and I believe still a Republican Senate in in the early 2000s at the time, obviously a Republican president, and this was basically to ha- to help George W. Bush uh, get senior votes against John Kerry in the 2004 election. Okay, so the idea that all of this stuff happens because. Uh, bureaucrats think it out and do public policy analyses and all that is, is just not the case. This is all political. And as a result, ever since then, huge pharmaceutical companies have had a whole new uh, group of patients and potential payments who can get their drugs for free. Yep. And uh, Janet and I, we practiced before Medicare Part D. So when we first got out of college um, in the 90s, there, were no, there was no Medicare Part D. So guess what? Um, pharmacies and drug companies, they had to keep their prices low and competitive because 50% of your population or plus 50% of your population were paying cash. So you had to know prices. You had to, you know, um, Walmart, I worked for Walmart out of school. We had a pricing structure and we had to be very competitive with the pharmacies around us. Mm-hmm. Now those days are gone. Call your local pharmacy and say, Hey, what's the price of XYZ drug? Well, what insurance do you have? Well, I don't have insurance. 
well, we don't know. Um, we, we bill your insurance. They tell us what to, well, I don't have insurance. What's, what's the cash price? I don't know. Cra- mm-hmm. Crazy. And the price after Medicare Part D is a great example. And I, and I talk about it in my book. After Medicare Part D, the price of prescription drugs went up 19% in one year. Wow. Of course they did. You know, now, I'm, I'm, these aren't exact numbers, but the average price of a month of, of, a, of a prescription back in the 90s before Medicare Part D was like 50 bucks a month. Now, the average price is like 500. I am not kidding. It is something that high. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, so what happened then is the is what they did is the government made it expensive because of their rule, because of Medicare Part D. And then everybody else, even if they don't have that government insurance, they have to pay too. You know, that's the unfortunate part. Now, the good news is, is there are still free market examples out there, whether it be pharmacy, whether it be um, doctors, where you can find good quality health care at a very reasonable price. We've, we've talked about some of them. Um, and that's what, that's what our goal is, is to educate people, um, educate and empower people to take charge of their own health, for one. And, and, and the best health insurance that we have is not some kind of policy that we can buy. It's how we take care of ourselves. Um, that's first and foremost. And then another important part of that too is to take care of your own health financially. So make sure that you shop for health care, whether it be doctor, whether it be um, pharmacy. And even if you do have insurance, still shop, mm-hmm. right? What are your comments on that? Well, I think it's true. Uh, you know, you can still shop, you can still negotiate. And uh, I, I love the idea of moving towards a shared health program like you're a member of I have I know have several friends who are involved in some of those. Some of them are are Christian based. Some of them are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a cost sharing thing. But again, you know, we got to get everyone aligned. We have to start to align interests. And any kind of cost sharing, uh, it by definition puts you all on the same page with the same incentives. Right. Exactly. So Jeff, as we wind, as we wind this podcast up, what do you have a passion for? Well, I certainly uh, think that medicine is probably amongst the most interesting industries in that it's moribund. It's been corrupted horribly by government. So the opportunities for entrepreneurship are exceedingly right. So it's not like uh, certain industries that are more open and so there's already a lot of competition in them. Uh, So I I think that um, a healthier America is something that we should all have a, a play a role in, we should all be interested in, we should all be concerned about our grandparents, our grandchildren, whatever it might be. So uh, we got to get government out of medicine. We have to separate the so, two if we're ever going to um, move forward in this country without, you know, adult old people taking 10 prescriptions, hugely diabetic population, uh, young people who are, who are, you know, consuming too much screen time and too much uh, sugar and and already horribly out of shape. I mean, we got a problem in this country, and, and uh, you know we we address it through incentives. I believe. Awesome. I think I, I think you're right. I agree with you 100. Um, percent So as we wrap it up, um, what's the best way to get a hold of you if anybody has any questions about the Mises Institute or, or has any questions for you? Well, just come to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, and uh, you can always find my email there or follow me on Twitter at Jeff Dice. All one word. Awesome. I love it, Jeff. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks, I appreciate your time. Okay. You bet.
And thank you for listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Um, tune in. Let's see what it'll be Monday. Uh, we have a nurse practitioner on, and she's going to be talking about women's health and how to empower women to take charge of their own health, which is basically the underlying theme of our podcast. So thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham.